everyone. Welcome back to Adherent Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Bethany Solarider and definitely butchered that, but we're not going to say the last name anymore. And we were talking about um, divine love and how that can explain evolutionary evil. So Bethany, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you. Yeah, I'm super pumped for this. So today we're going to be talking about animal suffering and the problem of evolutionary evil. Bethany's written on the topic and a little bit about a compassionate theodicy she's been working on at the end. So before we get into like the heavy stuff, Bethany, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Yeah. Um, so I am a theologian. I'm a practicing Christian and I work on anything if it's grim and depressing and, you know, it makes you just feel worse about the world. That's probably what I do. Mm-hmm. So in, in my, you know, master's and PhD, I looked at this question of could a good God create through evolution, which involves suffering, death, extinction, so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then following on from that, I've recently, I think we'll come back to it at the end, but talked to, written a book on why is there suffering. And now I am working with the Laudato Si Research Institute at Campion Hall here in Oxford, where I'm asking about what do we do if we can't stop climate change? Hmm. Wow, you have your hand in all kinds of like interesting topics like evolution and climate change and all these things. So I'm just curious, what got you interested in like looking at things specifically like looking at like God and evolution and suffering today? Yeah, well, I was interested in when I was doing my undergraduate, I I got really interested in the questions of God and suffering. And it, you know, it was really coming out of a personal experience of, you know, a church that had gone wrong. And me sort of wondering, you know, isn't God supposed to be in control here? Like, how is this? How is this all happening? And then when I turned my mind to try and think of how I could make this an interesting academic issue, you know, you don't want to do suffering in general, because there's just, you'd, you'd never finish reading. So I thought, well, maybe if I do this question of evolution, and the problem of evil, it, it makes it a slightly smaller question, because I'm not dealing with humans. And it makes it a much um, uh, more interesting as, as an academic topic. So I kind of took it up with that. But my my ulterior motive in in all of this is to really ask how can I serve the church in what I do. So uh, I'm I'm Canadian from Alberta, and there are lots of people who are not comfortable with evolution. They feel that first of all, it makes uh, it might mean that the Bible is untrue in ways that they're uncomfortable with. But then if that's dealt with by people like uh, Richard Middleton or John Walton. Then they start saying, but but doesn't that mean God used death, that God used suffering to create the world? I, I don't know if I can theologically accept that. So I really wrote with, with that sort of audience in mind, trying to understand how our theology could support such a view, or if it could really. Um, so I, I went in asking, can it support <laughs> that kind of a reality and came to the conclusion that I think it's okay. Yeah, it's definitely like so interesting to think about. And one of the things that like gets brought up a lot when we're talking about like God and evolution and like animal suffering and like people like um, young earth creationists or like even like people will have this question of like, well, doesn't the fall explain like all like animal suffering? Because this is something for me growing up, I always just like intuitively assumed I was like, oh, yeah, it's the fall. That's why we have um, animal suffering. But then when you look at like modern science and we see uh, just massive amounts of um, 
languishing of animals throughout the fossil record. So it seems like the fall may not be able to do that scientifically. Like, how would you generally respond to like people who think that like the fall could give a complete explanation of like the problem of animal suffering? Yeah. First, I'd ask which fall they're talking about, because if they're if they're wanting to say that human sin brought all of this suffering into the world, you have a big chronological problem. Right. So anatomically, modern humans have been around for about 200,000 years, behaviorally modern, 50,000 years, you know, uh, but we see animal suffering for hundreds of millions of years in in the fossil record. And so how did very, very recent sin cause all of this destruction for people or for animals back then becomes a, a real problem. And you have some people like William Dembski who are going to say, you know, God retroactively applied the effects of the human fall to the animal world. But that it, it, it's not a very elegant solution, I think. Um, I think that it raises a lot of questions about the goodness and justice of God in that case. The other option that people often look to is the question of a satanic fall that, um, you know, okay, humans weren't around from the beginning, but Satan and the fallen angels were, and they could have disrupted the evolutionary process. So C.S. Lewis famously argues this, and uh, some of my colleagues here, like Michael Lloyd, or some American scholars like um, Gregory Boyd argue that. And on the surface, it sounds pretty good, right? God made a good world, it was messed up by Satan, and that's why there's so much violence and pain in the natural world. I think that there are still a few problems with it. First, scripturally, God creates the world with animals and with all humans and is all, still saying it's good. So if it had been messed up since the very beginning through all the eons of development, you think God might have mentioned it in, um, chapter one yeah. and you know throughout things like the the narratives in job where god speaks god's pointing to all the most difficult problematic dangerous parts of creation with sort of special pride like have you seen what i've done here isn't it amazing mm -hmm. so there doesn't seem to be a, a strong biblical um foundation for saying you know the whole world is deeply uh, intertwined with, with Satan's corrupting actions. But scientifically, it gets even more difficult because what we see in evolution is that the very skills and abilities and values that we hold are intimately tied in to the suffering and the pain and the death. So that would mean if Satan caused the suffering, the pain and the death, then Satan is also responsible for all the goods, for the strength, the swiftness, for you know our intelligence. All of those things are a direct result of competition and elimination and, and extinction and so on. So you end up really passing the whole of creation over to Satan if you do that. Um, the other thing that science brings is it, it helps us see that suffering, even death, can actually be very difficult, but very good gifts. Hmm. So 
it, we, we, you know, I, I used to think, you know, life without pain would be really, really great. Like, wouldn't mm -hmm. that be awesome if I didn't feel pain? I'd be superwoman. <laughs> but when I went to uh, China earlier um, in, in my undergraduate days, we, we went to a leprosy colony mm -hmm. where, where people had been cured of the ongoing bacterial infection of leprosy, but still were dealing with sort of the after effects of the disease. And, and, and what, what the infection does is it kills your pain nerves. So you can no longer feel things. Um, and that's all it does. It doesn't actually devour skin or anything like that. It, it, it simply kills the pain nerves. And then people not being able to feel pain slowly destroy their own bodies. So they will burn themselves and not know they might break their, uh, you know, bones in their foot and keep walking on them because they don't feel pain, they can't um, protect themselves. And so one of the, one of the things that's interesting is if Jesus was curing people who had Hansen's disease, what we now call what used to be called leprosy. Um, it's a bit ambiguous because that word was used for all sorts of skin diseases. But if any of them had Hansen's disease, Jesus's healing was giving them back their ability to feel pain. It wasn't taking pain away. And so I, 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 I think it's more consistent to see suffering as part of the good and difficult gift that God gives in life. And that, you know, it's the same with love. It's the same with family. It's the same with so many things. And you lose that richness if you're just saying it's all it's all due to the fall. Mm. It's super helpful. And I think about, I, think about um, I read John Schneider's book on uh, animal suffering, and he talks about like the fall, like not being like a like adequate like theodicy in terms of like giving like a complete comprehension. And like, there's a lot of good stuff here on this topic. So I guess what I'm wondering next is like the question of like why would God use evolution in the first place? So we think about this idea of having like an all-powerful, perfect God who can really do anything if in fit with his character. Um, he could like do different ways of creating, like maybe special creation or something like this. But I mean, it seems like, like if God, like why would God use a process like evolution in the first place? Cause we've talked about how evolution can enroll in obviously like good things like life and growth and things, but also like suffering and death and all these terrible things. So I believe this is like very broad question to you. Like why would God use a process like evolution in the first place? Yeah, it's a great question. And of course, I don't have a full answer to it. But if I were to guess, I would I would sort of say two things. You know, there's that question of why wouldn't God just create heaven first? Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if that's a possibility, why not just go there? And one of the interesting things, I think, is that even within our our tradition, there are certain values that we have here that are not possibilities in heaven. So people don't think that in heaven that we'll be married or have kids, for example. So that seems to be something that is limited to this plane of existence. And so I think that there are goods here that God wanted and just creating um, heaven with sort of, you know, in individuals that hadn't been through any process seems to be undesirable. But I think in terms of evolution on this earth, I think it's one of the only ways that creation could really have the freedom to make itself. 
you know, anything else would involve God's constant stepping in, God's constant um, intervention, rather than what I think is the case, which is God's constant being with. So I don't want to get into a sort of a deist view where God's absent, you know, the clockmaker who sort of sets things up and lets things go. But there's an aspect of just as a parent has to let their children take their own course in life and not control everything. I think evolution, in a sense, exemplifies that sort of loving freedom given to the other to be what it is without God directing it and without God um, forcing it down certain lines. And so in that process, it both reflects the freedom of God, but I don't think every outcome is exactly as God wanted it. So when somebody says, you know, do you think God designed a parasite to, you know, eat the eyes of lambs? I'm going, no, I don't think God designed that. I think that that's a, an occurrence that comes out when creatures are given uh, this sort of freedom that love requires. So I guess I'm wondering then, like, why think that, like, we need this process for have of, like, significant freedom for like divine love because I, th- I hear like an atheist or someone thinking right here like so you're telling me that like like a self-creating creation a sense of god like creating some sort of evolutionary process which can like have creation um in a sense like bring forth like other beings like all that like suffering and languishing like that's the reason like surely there's more or like something like this like when we reflect on like maybe like millions of years of animal suffering and whatnot or like deadly parasites or all these like horrors that seem to have existed in the past of the earth. So like, if you, if you're tracking what I'm saying here, like how would you respond to this kind of objection? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that we tend to divide nature up into the good and the bad, you know? So we think the, the lamb is good. The, the parasite is clearly evil. And I, I don't think that that is really quite right. I think both are creatures beloved by God and that God embraces both but and plans to bring both to redemption. So the lamb has its failures. I mean, think just think what it's doing to the poor grass. You know, I mean, we think of the lamb as a gentle animal, but I mean, from the grass's perspective, the lamb is wretched. Um, and so we, we are in this world where everything exists by... Uh, depending on others. And it's interesting, Charles Kingsley, the sort of 19th century uh, pastor, theologian, who who first sort of responded to Darwin positively, in a, in a lecture he gave a few years later, talked about how I was really disturbed by this. I mean, God made a world where everything exists by forcibly eating everything else. It just seems horrible. And he thought, well, actually, I think I can flip that on its head and say, God has given us a world where everything supports everything else, mm. where everything is given to everything else. Mm-hmm. And so I think to some extent, it, it depends on which way you read that, where we all sustain each other through these ecological trophic lines. Mm. I think reading Richard Swinburne really helped me see this point because he was talking about animal suffering and like a lot of the times, at least I think when this argument gets presented like against God, we picture his evolution as like something like the Hunger Games almost, where like everyone's just out there to like destroy each other and last one standing lives. But it also like like the animal like world and like our world involves a lot of cooperation. Like we couldn't do things like solely on our own. And I think that's a great point that you're trying to bring forth, Bethany, is like there's so much more to like life and like 
looking at like the process of evolution than just uh, like a mere like Hunger Games or something like that. Yeah. So I think it was Sarah Coakley and Martin Novak uh, did some work on this, kind of talking about how we tend to emphasize the competitive nature of evolution because that's theologically problematic. But there's actually a lot that's built on cooperation and and uh, altruism as well. Now, I mean, I say that with a cautionary note because people can get carried away and be like, evolution's not bad. Look at all the cooperation, you know? And it's like, well, yes. So there's interspecies and interpersonal interanimal um, cooperation at various points. But sometimes these are kind of like looking at human gangs as great, uh, you know, mm-hmm. examples of coordination. Yeah, they're coordinated. Yeah, they're working together, but usually for a goal against some other. So mm-hmm. I, I, I sort of, I put forward that there's cooperation while also saying, but generally that cooperation sits within a larger f- framework of, um, of conflict. Uh, but it is it is intriguing that as life has continued to evolve, what we've seen is greater complexity, greater uh, interdependence, greater uh, sharing, I think, mm-hmm. than than the earliest life forms where everything was sort of out for itself. Hmm. That's super interesting. So I think it might be helpful at this point to like talk about like, maybe like a specific amp- example. So I don't know if this is in your book or if I just made this up because I just seen it in my notes, but um, we like we could think about, for example, reflecting on like the life of a dinosaur who lived and died say 230 million years ago. Um, that life maybe like killed other animals probably to survive or maybe if it's something more like passive, like plants or something, um, but it, it was involved in this process of um, just like it had a life and maybe probably suffered and maybe caused some other animals to suffer. Um, what, what's so valuable about, about this life, this dinosaur 230 million years ago? Because you talk about like a creation and love allowing for like freedom, which is like good. So for example, like looking at the case of the dinosaur, what makes this life worth living in the first place? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there are several different levels we parse that out from. It is it is actually from, from the sixth chapter of my book. Mm-hmm. So I sort of talk about how it is something that A, has the gift of being, the gift of life. And that that is wildly valuable. We don't, we still have difficulty defining what is living and what is not and what precisely makes something different from all that isn't living around us, you know. And to some extent that, that dinosaur is going to have the gift of consciousness. It's going to have the gift of, interrelationship with all that's around it. So it's going to have relationships with its parents, with its children, with its mate, with the things that it eats, you know, and the things that will one day eat it. And I think that all of those interrelationships are valuable. The most valuable thing about it is, of course, that God loves it, that God enjoyed that dinosaur's life and and saw it. Um, And I think that you know, sometimes theologians kind of talk about the dinosaurs as they were really only important as a as a stepping stone to us. You know, mm-hmm. we needed all these life forms to live so that the the great complexity that is found in the image of God in people is is achieved. And I think that that's a quite anemic view. I'd rather say God has delighted in all the ages of life, and you know, is delighted as well with us. I think there might be one more way that I could talk about the life of that dinosaur having 
having worth. And this is uh, probably stretching the boundaries of theological credibility, but I will try it. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea that creatures afterwards who benefited from its life and death, the, the value of their lives gets attributed back to that dinosaur. So it, I, was, I was reflecting on how Hebrews, uh, I think it's 10, 11, and 12, talk about how, you know, the legacy of someone like Abraham is enhanced by the legacy of Christ. Now, Christ, of course, lives and dies long, long after Abraham, but there's something where it's to the glory of Abraham that his descendant is Christ. And so in a, in a, in a much expanded way, it's something to the honor and benefit of the dinosaurs that their extinction, which was a tragedy at the time that it happened 65 million years ago, that their extinction, which opened up new uh, ecological niches and opportunities led to the development of mammals uh, really exploding and therefore the development of humans eventually. Mm-hmm. So there's something about us being the great grand, 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 grand inheritors of the, of the sort of life and, and tradition of dinosaurs that I think gets reflected back on them in, in whatever redeemed form we might see. I think this is super interesting to like draw an analogy. So as you were talking, Bethany, I was thinking about like scientific progress. So like our scientific advances today wouldn't be possible without like, say like the people like Isaac Newton or like other scientific thinkers at the time. So you think like analogously, like we could attribute, like say like, um, like our existence in in part is due to like the existence of the dinosaurs. Um, So like, would you like consider that like somewhat of like an analogy? Yeah, absolutely. I think the only thing is that we are not direct descendants of the dinosaurs. Okay. Right. So I was wondering, we, my evolutionary biology knowledge is like none. So no I wasn't sure. So yeah, dinosaurs, uh, their uh, still existent descendants are actually birds. Mm-hmm. So at the time dinosaurs were alive, you had a parallel stream of mammals who were yeah. they're very small creatures, kind of like a shrew running around, mm-hmm. you know. And um, so their death, their life and death doesn't it, it's not an exact descendant mm-hmm. in that way, yeah. but I think that, um, you know, without their dying, it's un, it's unlikely, you know, without the dinosaur's extinction, it's unlikely that mammals would have had as much freedom to develop as they did, or it would have taken a lot longer. Mm-hmm. So um, Simon Conway Morris over at Cambridge would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mammals eventually, because they were so diverse and warm-blooded and able to do things, would eventually have outcompeted the dinosaurs, but it may have taken millions and millions of more years. Mm-hmm. So um, so either either way, uh, their, their unfortunate extinction led to our benefit. Mm. That's good. I really appreciate that. So I think one of the last things I want to talk about here is we've talked about like, say like the dinosaur who lives and dies 230 million years ago. And then there's this question of like, well, like do we need like an animal afterlife? Is this a plausible view to explain things? Cause I think as someone like Trent Dougherty or like even John Schneider, like books I've read, um, they talk about like how, like, it seems like we need some sort of like animal afterlife to for this, for these animals to really like um, 
redeem their suffering in a sense you could talk about like dowry goes extensive into like potentially like soul building for animals and whatnot so do you think like an animal afterlife is like a plausible view so like for example like the dinosaur 230 million years ago when it dies is that the end of its story or is there more to come or are you just yeah. gonna yeah, yeah yeah so i do think it's plausible but i think it's plausible for slightly different reasons than Trent Dougherty or John Schneider. Mm-hmm. And I, I think where where we slightly disagree is that they want to say this is needed as a sort of compensation for the suffering that was experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two problems with that. The first is that suffering really only happens when you have fairly advanced consciousness. So I'm not sure that we could look at a lot of the animals and a lot of the creatures that lived and say that they had suffering per se, (laughs) you know, but Mm -hmm. rather that they, you know, felt pain in various ways. Yes. But um, so, so one, I think that that limits the, the pool of recipients of redemption, sadly, you know, like, is there going to be no worms? Like that would be too bad, you know, or will there be no insects? That would be too bad. Um, But I think the second reason is that I don't think that redemption is primarily about compensation. I don't think it's God saying, sorry, you had a rough time. Now I'm going to try and make it up to you by by this sort of afterlife. I think redemption always has been about the life of God find, you know, not finding fullness, but being expressed most fully in communion with life. So redemption, the scope of redemption in my mind is simply the answer to who and what does God love? Mm -hmm. So if God loves every creature, and I do believe that God loves that dinosaur, then I think that that dinosaur has a place in the redeemed creation, just Mm -hmm. as that amoeba and that worm and that, you know. Now that raises questions about, well, how are all these things gonna live together? And the answer to that is, of course, I don't know. Um, but I think that there are ways to to work things out. I don't know if you want to get into the weeds there, but. Yeah, I mean, we have a little bit of time. So something I was thinking about as you were talking, Bethany, is so we talked about like potentially like this dinosaur, um, maybe partaking in the eschaton or whatnot. So we have this question that I've been thinking of, like, so do you think like, so someone like Dowry or Schneider, they're going to say that like God, in a sense, um, for the benefit of the creature, like he has maybe, I don't know if they call it an obligation, but he would, in a sense, like, have to or would, like, resurrect, like, every, like, creature or, like, creatures that can, like, experience suffering um, to, like, justify, in a sense, their suffering. Do you think that God has to do that, like, to, like, redeem their suffering? Or is it potentially, like, um, you know, you can think about, like, Rose Fawn or the dinosaur we've been talking about. Like, does God have to, like, bring them into, like, another, like, life or whatnot? I... I don't have a very strong answer to that. I I I'm t- I tend to be cautious about what God has to or, or doesn't yeah. have to do, mm-hmm. um, and I I I. It it's an interesting question in the sense of I think what are the obligations of love? So if we're saying God is defined by being love, then God will do whatever is loving, regardless of whether God has to. So I'd rather say that a full expression of God's love is going to redeem all those creatures rather than, you know, God is somehow on the hook for, you know, living up to our moral expectations. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I'm sure somebody will get mad at me for saying that, but 
you know, so I, 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 my, my confidence is not in what God is morally obligated to do. My confidence is in God's unlimited love. Mm. Yeah, that's super interesting. So I'd love to transition here a little bit to talk about your new book that came out. We've been talking about like God, evolution, and animal suffering, which came out a few years ago. But you have a new book that came out just like a few weeks ago, I believe, um, called Why Is There Suffering? Pick Your Own Theological Expedition. So this develops what you call like a compassionate theodicy. So could you talk a little bit about like what this is and what this theodicy is? Because this is super interesting to me. Yeah, thanks. I, I, so I did my PhD on theodicy and realized I really didn't enjoy the process of reading a lot of the books that were out there yeah. because they were couched in abstract philosophical terms. They were argued through analytic logic. They mm -hmm. used way too many big words that seemed largely unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And they were also really, really violent. So every author seemed to be saying, you know, in order to for my readers to understand that I really understand the shape of the world, I'm going to trot out a bunch of stories of horrific suffering. Mm. And I just found it so traumatizing to read those stories that I could hardly face mm. looking, you know, read, you know, trying to think about the analytical arguments that then followed. And actually, I found out later from sort of looking at trauma literature, that that's exactly right. That if your emotional brain is feeling under attack, under strain, you know, that the analytical side of your brain just kind of shuts off because, you know, and so I, I really felt it a very difficult experience trying to read through these things. And insofar as I got better at reading horrific stories from concentration camps and then to coolly analyze them, I felt like that was something wrong was happening, that I was losing something that was importantly and legitimately human. And so at the same time, having read through all that stuff, I actually did find it useful. It helped me answer some of the questions I had about sort of my existential angst and the different things that were going on for me. So what I wanted to do was write a theodicy book that invited other people into that journey of discovery mm. without predetermining their end, without trying to argue them into a particular position. I was trying to lay out the landscape of theodicy so that lay people could do some of that exploration that I'd been able to do, but would be able to do it without doing three years of, you know, doctoral work in order to get through it. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how this came about. Um, and in trying to figure out how to lay out that landscape, I thought, you know, what's really important is that the reader have a lot of agency. So when I was doing my doctoral work, I could pick up whichever book I wanted and read it and get an idea of what it was arguing, etc. Um, and I, I really appreciated that sort of freedom. And I wanted to give that and that sort of dialogic sense to my reader. So I've actually used the sort of form of a choose your own adventure type book where you read a couple pages, you make a decision, and then you flip to the next part of the story of your theological argument. So you can see 
how making one theological argument leads on to other theological results and how that might then commit you to different sorts of argumentation and, and different positions. So I'll just show you a quick, this is what the whole book looks like in, yeah. it, in its entirety. So those are all the different positions you can go through. You start um, over here. And the first question is, I don't know if that'll make any sense to you, um, is, is the question, what is God like? Is God loving and powerful? Does God exist but not love us? Or does God not exist? And so in a sense, I'm echoing that sort of trilemma of, of standard theodicy, you know, God is good, God is powerful, or um, God uh, evil exists, you know. So I'm, I'm sort of echoing that, and then you can follow on through there. And then just to make it a bit more fun, my, my, I had this idea that in order to make it really playful and really show that I'm trying to do something different, I wanted to immerse it in a landscape. So it would feel a little bit Pilgrim's Progressy. And mm -hmm. I was so grateful to my editors at Zondervan for going along with this. And so what we've actually done is there's a whole landscape that you're working your way through. So you can oh, wow. go up to the mountains of mystery, or you can go to the high high moors of atheism. Here's the, the, you know, the eternal city. And that's Lewis's gray town from um, uh, the, the great divorce, mm -hmm. you know, so you've got, you know, um, here, these are uh, islands of, of sort of different types of divine action. Mm -hmm. And so you, you get to sort of feel like you're on this quest as, as you go along exploring the options. So, what I was trying to really do was one, give people a lot of freedom about how to explore, but also to to not be engaging that really highly emotional charged sense. Hmm. So it's not a sense of, you know, if you pick the wrong path, you're going to die and everyone, you know, it's, it's just sort of come explore theology. Theology hmm. is wonderful. And, it, it gives so many possibilities for thinking about these things. But I think if we make the stakes really high, then everyone's afraid to make a decision. If I choose the wrong path, it, you know, it, it could have devastating results. Whereas this is like, go on, explore the wrong path and then come back and read another path later. Mm -hmm. um, so I've included a bunch of paths that I don't agree with, that I tried to really do my best to argue for. Um, and whenever I did that, then I spoke to people who held those positions and had them read the chapter to make sure I was doing justice to their views. Uh, That's actually really, really cool. I love the idea of this book of having just like overviewing the different views and looking at like all the options we have as a theist. Because I was thinking about like I was reading when I was reading Schneider's book, which really good book, but he talks about like the first few chapters. He just makes evolution sound really bleak, which I mean is a purpose of his book. Um, talking about like cosmic micro monsters and stuff. And he's like, well, here's all these options that don't work. And then here's like what I think does work in the last couple of chapters. And it's like kind of what you're talking about where it's a valuable piece, but it's a very different kind of approach than what you have, Bethany, which is super cool with the idea of like choosing your own adventure. And I love the pilgrim's progress um, <laughs> that kind of like partaking in the adventure thing. So I love what you're doing. So it sounds super amazing. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was it was probably the most fun I've ever had writing something. And you know what, I just thought, why can't I trust my reader? Mm -hmm. Why can't I trust my reader to make good theological decisions? And so my point is not 
most theodicies try and convince their reader of one position, as in fact I do in my God Evolution Animal Suffering. For this one, I tried my hardest to argue well for all the positions, and I want people to bring their own life experience to bear. So that's the other thing. I don't have any grim stories, because I figure if anybody picks up a book called Why Is There Suffering, they probably have grim stories of their own. And that's really the question that most people want answered. When you get right down to it, they want to know, why did I and my loved one suffer? Um, and so I let them bring their own story to the table and ask, do any of these paths make sense of what I've been through? I think that's super beautiful to have people choose their like own stories and think about because we're so ingrained in like our experiences, which is a good thing. Like each person is different and we've had different experiences and we have we value different things. And I think it's super valuable that what you're doing of like allowing people to explore these different things. Cause I think if we aren't like acknowledging like our presuppositions or like what we believe, like Christian atheist, agnostic, Muslim Jew, like we all have these like different experiences that ingrain us. Um, and we have to like really come to like appreciate them and like use them as part of like our fuel for like going through our journey. And I appreciate you really striving to just help people seek for truth. Uh, Cause I think it's yeah. such a beautiful thing. And it's one of my goals with my channels. I don't want to be like, hey, like this is right and you have to believe this or you're irrational. Like it's really just about like exploring different ideas and just pursuing truth for the beauty of truth. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, I asked for a few pages to be at the end blank. So people can write their own chapters in if oh, they wow. decide I have not been, I mean, I have no illusions that I'm comprehensive. I do <laughs> a number of Christian views. I do some atheist views. So you don't views. like do... solve the problem of evil in like 180 <sighs> pages or not? No, like 30,000 words just wasn't enough, you know? Yeah, no. So I, you know, I, I really want people to engage and to, 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 to feel free to edit mm -hmm. <laughs> and to add. Um, because there's there's so there's so much more and and to take a part in their theological adventure rather than just saying I just believe what I'm taught, mm. you know, take a hand in it. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been such an amazing interview, Bethany. Um, we'll go to. I saw one question, so if there's any more questions, we'll get to a little bit in a second here. But before we get into that, is there anything with regards to like evolutionary evils or your compassionate theodicy? Anything you didn't get you that you didn't get to say uh, before we go into a little bit of Q and A? Um, no, I think, I think we've, we've covered what I'd like to say. Thanks. Awesome. Um, so we do have one question from thank you, Jesus, um, talking about like the eschaton. Um, so it's like, what do you think about Isaiah saying that animals will not be carnivores? So looking at the eschaton, like if the T-Rex comes back, is it going to be eating like other animals in the eschaton or is it a vegetarian? Like what's going on here? This is great. So I think the two passages in Isaiah that people generally point to are, Isaiah 11, the lion will lie down with the lamb and the little child with the asps and that kind of thing. And I think that there's a place in Isaiah 65 as well, where it talks about, you know, the ravenous beast will all be nice. What people often miss out is, and now I'm going to get this totally wrong, but I think it's Isaiah 35 or 36, where it says, on my, on my holy mountain, there will be no ravenous beast. There will be no wolf. There will be no, you know. So I think, one, we need to recognize the sort of apocalyptic nature of this text, that it's not actually uh, a picture of the new creation, but that it's trying to give us the flavor of it. So I'd be hesitant to sort of say that, they won't be carnivorous or that they will be. And people in the literature have argued both sides. So David Clough would say, of course they can't be carnivorous, you know, 
if it's not a peaceable kingdom, then it's not God's kingdom, you know. And somebody like Christopher Southgate would say, well, if it's carnivorousness, but it's not including the sort of difficult parts, it doesn't have pain or fright, then maybe maybe it's okay. And so he pulls on a on a poem by uh, James Dickey called Animal Heaven, where the creatures do uh, hunt, but but it's sort of the most beautiful game, really. And so I sort of riffed off that and I said, well, okay. I think that, you know, a lion who has, who is shorn of all their instincts to hunt might be less than a full lion. But I wonder if those instincts could be turned to something else. So if I am, uh, you know, most humans have a long, well, all humans have a long history of hunting somewhere in their lineage. That is how humans existed for a long time. But nowadays, not many of us hunt. I mean, I'm from a hunting family in Alberta, but I, I acknowledge that this is possibly more rare in today's world. But most humans take those instincts and take those strengths and skills and put them towards sport. So I sort of think maybe there's some analogy there to sort of sport being the way that those instincts get preserved, but it doesn't result in bloodshed. That's super interesting. I have one more question for you. Are you familiar with the, like, the idea of like teleological evils? Uh, it, I'm it, not sure what you mean precisely. Okay. I'll, I'll frame it then because I was curious. Yes. This is a specific kind of like argument that I've heard um, used as like an argument against God. And it's been developed. I think it's a very recent argument. So I think Felipe Leon um, in his book, Dialogue Book with Josh Rasmussen, which only came out like a year or two ago, was the first person to really come up with this idea. And it's the idea that when we look at like the character of like animal suffering – there's a specific phenomena where we have animals. Um, I'm trying to think what examples they bring up. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but animals whose job is literally just, they, they inflict suffering on other animals. And that's kind of like um, survivor whatnot. Like their primary thing they do is just inflict suffering on anim other animals as a specific challenge to like the idea of like God allowing like evolution or like using evolution. So I was just curious, like with like this very broad sketch, I give you how you would respond specifically to like that kind of, um, argument yeah i mean i think that's only a problem if you think god specifically designed them to be that way mm -hmm. right i don't think that i don't think that god directed evolution to result in particular body types or survival methods so i think that god gave the process freedom and th that those things emerged now you could say god took too much of a risk for that that god shouldn't have given such freedom you know, and so you end up into what's known as the argument uh, from neglect, which somebody like Wesley Wildman would say, well, you know, a parent who gives their child absolute freedom to run across the road is is not really being loving. They're being neglectful. Um, and I think that in response to that kind of an argument, I'd probably say something along the lines of God's relationship to the world is not that of parent to child where there are specific individual responsibilities. So, you know, um, but I also think that it doesn't take redemption into account as part of that story. So God has created a world where every creature capable of suffering will suffer to some extent. God has created a world where every creature that has life 
will die. So kind of saying, well, this seems like a particularly horrific instance. You know, if, God, if God's to be trusted at all, I think God can be trusted for all of it. Um, you know, and I would, I would also get into something like a co-suffering argument that God isn't standing above and beyond and outside the suffering, like, you know, Lord Farquaad sending the knights off to rescue Princess Fiona saying, some of you may die, but it is a risk I'm willing to take. No, mm. no, no. God, God is intimately uh, experiencing the suffering in the world with, with us. And so it's not a risk that God hasn't taken as well. Mm. Well, that's all the questions we have. So Bethany, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you and there's just so much fun stuff to think about and important things to think about. And I'm so grateful for your work and your time today. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who tuned in today to thank you, Jesus and Shannon Q and Warrior Women and everyone else. We're so grateful for you and your time. If you're new to the channel, we always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. You can check out Bethany and her new book. There's a link down below. And if you value our content, consider becoming a member or a patron. You can just click the join button on YouTube or become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Your support means a lot. Um, but yeah, one last time, Bethany, thank you so much. So grateful for this conversation. Thank you. And thank you, everyone. Have a good one and God bless.